Good morning, everyone. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Mother Teresa, one of the most beloved saints of modern times, was renowned all over the world for her humility and charity, serving for many years among the poor in Calcutta in India. And yet you may know that after she died, a book was published that included some of her personal writings and revealed that she suffered for much of her life with a deep spiritual darkness, a dryness, a sense that God had abandoned her. Where is my faith, she wrote. Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. The reaction to that book was telling. Many people felt that it undermined what Mother Teresa had done. She was not, it seemed, the person we had thought she was. How could a great saint actually doubt that God really exists? Some people took it as evidence that Christianity itself was a lie. The atheist Christopher Hitchens gleefully called her a fraud. But I like what the writer uh, Jean Edward Veith says about Mother Teresa. He says, her spiritual darkness makes it all the more likely that she was indeed a true Christian saint. It seems she lived by faith, not by sight. She continued to serve Jesus even when she couldn't sense his presence. She continued to pray even when she felt like God wasn't listening. When she felt only, in her own words, a convicting emptiness. Many other saints have suffered in similar ways to Mother Teresa. Uh, Mother Teresa's own namesake, Saint Therese of Lisieux. I don't know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> uh, Saint Therese had similar periods of spiritual depression, which she called the night of nothingness. We could name many others. Maybe you've experienced something like this yourself. Veith uses Mother Teresa's spiritual darkness as an example of what's often called the theology of the cross. Her suffering teaches us that the way of Jesus in this life is not the way of triumph, ease, or success. This idea comes from uh, Martin Luther, who contrasted what he called the theology of glory with what he called the theology of the cross. The theology of glory expects that the Christian life will be one of success, moving from one victory to another. And when bad things do happen, which they inevitably do, the theology of glory assumes that God has failed us. But the theology of the cross knows better. It knows that our Lord Jesus himself did not live a life of this kind of glory. Instead, he was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In fact, it was Jesus who said, while he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' glory is always finally the glory of the cross. And we too must learn to walk where our Savior has gone before us. We've been saying over the last several weeks now that the season of Epiphany displays for us in the scriptures the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we have reached the culmination of the season, the last Sunday of Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday. In the Transfiguration, Jesus' great glory is revealed. But I want to ask the question this morning, what kind of glory is it? And I want to consider this question by noticing first two patterns in Mark's gospel, which is where our gospel uh, reading came from today. And both of these patterns show up around this story of transfiguration. And both, I think, will help us see what kind of glory Jesus manifests in the transfiguration. First is the pattern throughout Mark's gospel of Jesus predicting his own suffering and death. Mark records three different times when Jesus tells his disciples very plainly that he will suffer and be killed and after three days be raised again. And the first of these three predictions comes in Mark 8, just before the transfiguration story uh, in Mark 9. Jesus asks his disciples who they say he is. And Peter, speaking, we assume, for all the twelve confesses boldly that Jesus is the Christ. Peter is right, of course. But immediately follows, but Jesus immediately follows Peter's confession with this prediction of his own suffering and death. Uh, Mark says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter, again, we assume, uh, representing the general response of all the 12 disciples, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are not on the side of God, but of men. The disciples are baffled and disillusioned by Jesus' prediction of his own death. They don't understand it, but it seems to them that maybe they've misunderstood who Jesus really is. It is in this context that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up with him on the high mountain, where they see him transfigured, revealed before their very eyes as the very Son of God. It's almost as if Jesus is reassuring them. Come and see who I really am. They don't understand yet. Jesus knows they don't understand yet. Uh, but he's asking them to hold together two very different and seemingly conflicting ideas. Jesus will suffer and die. Jesus really is the Christ, God's own son. second pattern I want us to notice is Jesus' habit throughout the Gospels 
of trying to keep his true identity a secret. <laughs> it shows up a couple times here. First, after Jesus confesses, or Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ in Mark 8, he immediately charges his disciples to tell no one who he really is. And next, immediately after the transfiguration, the last verse of our gospel reading this morning, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the transfiguration itself is a part of this pattern. The transfiguration is the story of Jesus being revealed in great glory, but he is not revealed publicly, not even to all his own disciples, but only Peter, James, and John. It is a full manifestation of Jesus' glorious identity, but it is not a public one. It's a private viewing. And Jesus urges the disciples to tell no one what they had seen. Only later would it be made public to all the world through its telling in the Gospels by the apostles themselves. This is what is often called the messianic secret. Jesus frequently told people to keep quiet about his true identity. He told people he had healed not to talk about it. He told demons he was casting out not to say aloud who he really was. And he told his disciples, as we see here, to keep these things to themselves. Why? Wasn't Jesus' whole purpose in coming to earth to reveal the glory of the Father? Wasn't he doing things all the time that manifested that very glory? Why would he try to keep it a secret? Both Jesus' repeated predictions to his disciples that he would suffer and die and his keeping his true identity a secret help us to see who he really is. Jesus knew that people could not truly understand who he was or what he could come to do until the cross. He knew that until he had suffered and died and been raised again, the people would always misunderstand his true identity. They would understand his glory only in a human way. They would understand it only as a way for them to get what they wanted, to have their diseases healed, their demons cast out, their stomachs filled. They would, in other words, build him up into a theology of glory. And so Jesus told his disciples very plainly on several occasions that he must suffer and die, even though he knew they could not understand what he meant. And so too, Jesus asked that people not broadcast his true identity. On one hand, yes, the secret still leaked out. <laughs> people could not stop talking about what they had seen and heard. And yet Jesus still guards the secret. Maybe in part, he did this to kind of slow the wave of public acclamation and excitement. And so also the backlash from the chief priests and the elders, which would eventually lead to his passion and death. Maybe, he, maybe too, he did it to show that he was not pursuing this kind of fame and acclamation. If he had wanted to, Jesus could easily have stoked the fires of revolution and played up people's excitement about the potential for an earthly kingdom. Several times, the people actually tried to make him their king. But Jesus does not take this path. Instead, he actively discourages people from it. 
He has a different calling, a different way, something else he wants to show us, the way of the cross. When we come to the transfiguration itself, we find that it too is all about the cross. First, there is Peter's suggestion that they make three booths, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, Peter's enthusiasm is understandable, but it's confused. He wants to capture this moment and stay there. He thinks that this is the moment that can be the beginning of a new program for Jesus. They can set up camp on the mountain and start to usher in a new era then and there. He doesn't understand what Jesus has already been telling them, that his glory will come only by way of the cross. Second, we have Moses and Elijah here speaking with Jesus. And Luke's gospel tells us what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about. It says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They're talking to him about his death. Right here amidst all the glory, they're talking about Jesus' crucifixion. They're talking about Jesus' death amid his glory because there is no glorified Christ apart from the cross. It is because he endured the cross that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' eternal glory, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever, world without end. Amen. Is revealed in the cross in his humiliation, disgrace, and death. God conquers through humility by giving himself for us, even unto death. That is Jesus' eternal glory. At the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus has risen from the dead, he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples are describing their bewilderment that Jesus, who they thought was the Christ, had died. What does Jesus say to them? How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus' death was actually what Moses and the prophets had been speaking about all along. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, but his death had always been their theme. So in a sense, Moses and Elijah are doing here what they had always done, talking about Jesus' death. There's nothing more glorious for them to talk about. One of my favorite verses in the Psalter comes from Psalm 139. It says this, If I say, let the darkness cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness and light to thee are both alike. And there's a song by Michael Card that is based on those verses. Maybe you know it. We used to sing it to our kids at bedtime. Even the darkness is light to him, and the night is as bright as the day. So you are safe, though the light grows dim, for even the darkness is light to him. 
These verses can be a comfort to children when they're frightened at bedtime and to adults too when we walk through the darkness of this life. The revelation of Christ at the transfiguration shows that even the darkness of the cross is not dark to Jesus. It is filled with the bright light of God's glory. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. How can we be afflicted but not crushed? Perplexed but not driven to despair? Struck down but not destroyed? Only because Jesus' life is manifested in his death. Only because the way of the cross is the way of glory. It's easy to wonder why we suffer. Or to assume that because we suffer, God must not care about us. Or his promises must not really be true. But to believe that is to accept the theology of glory. It is to think that the way of Jesus must be the way of ease and success. But praise be to God, that isn't true. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. And that is good news. It means that we can each take up our own crosses, the crosses each of us have been given to carry, in full confidence that Jesus has already gone before us and that in his cross, he has borne all our crosses too. Even the darkness is light to him and the night is as bright as the day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.